Hello, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make or break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Rizvold. And today we are coming to you from the midst of the coronavirus social isolation universe. Uh, Both John and I have been working from home for about how long has it been now, John? I've been doing this since the 13th of March. This is week three or four. I don't know. Time is kind of a flat circle right now, right? It certainly is. It certainly is. And I'm at about the same uh, time frame. I've been home for about three weeks. Um, And I wanted to ask you how you've been adjusting to working from home all this time. I know you usually are in the office, as am I. And what kinds of things are you doing to uh, keep yourself productive and up to date while while being remote? So the interesting thing is, you know, like you, I spend a lot of time in court I have a lot of depositions. None of that's going on right now because the courts are closed and a lot of the depositions have been continued because people don't know how to use technology as well as we would like probably so that we can do them remotely by phone or video. So a lot of the time has been spent just kind of sharpening my tools, reading a lot, getting on a lot of webcasts like this and learning from experts, um, but also just kind of digging into my cases and seeing where I can make them better and how I can better help the clients. Um, that's been a lot of my work. The life side of it has been interesting because, you know, like you, I've got kids. So keeping the kids sane, keeping myself sane, trying to get outside when I can get fresh air, go for a run, that kind of stuff. Um, those have been the sort of things I've been trying to do, but uh, cabin fever is a real thing. Oh, it certainly is. I'm certainly feeling it over here. Um, kind of on my end, what I've been doing a lot is catching up with clients. I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls, doing a lot of phone calls. Uh, Checking in, seeing how they're doing, getting updates, giving them updates about uh, progress on your case. Um, I've also been doing a lot of legal research, actually. Um, Yesterday, in particular, I dug into uh, two issues having to do with damages on a larger case that's going to trial later this year. Uh, It's a tough case. It's a catastrophic, you know, permanent type injury case. And I really wanted to do my homework and dig in on what we needed to prove, what the proofs are, what the case law says. And I spent most of the, I'd say at least half the day yesterday doing that, uh, just really getting deep into the case law. And it's something that if I'm at the office with the phone ringing all the time and people coming in my office asking questions, just the natural distractions of being in that kind of environment, it's really difficult for me to do. Um, but even with you know the kids being home like you have, um, I've been still trying to find the time and the space to kind of do those deeper projects that require a little bit more thought, a little bit more time and, you know, just kind of setting aside, you know, a couple hours uh, in a block to do something, which as you know, in an office environment, isn't always something that you can do. No, that's really hard to do. It's nice to be able to have a little bit, a little bit more time. Um, And you're right. Like this is a really good time. If you have a trial coming up, I know my fall is jam packed with trials. I've got two in July, one in August, one September, one October. Um, it's a really good time to figure out all your motions in limine. It's a really good time to figure out, you know, what kind of voir dire works for what kind of case, practice it, practice your open, do your jury instructions, that kind of stuff that really, you know, sharpens your toolkit and makes it so much easier and less stressful when you get to trial. I mean, I'm the kind of person who probably, like a lot of lawyers, I do a lot of my motions in limine or a lot of my jury instructions or, or anything like three weeks before trial or, you know, two weeks before trial, sometimes depending on how busy I am. But with all this time that's been freed up because the courts are closed, 
um, it's a really good time to sort of get ahead of the eight ball there and, and really uh, make the defense work a lot harder. And that's a huge advantage when you have all of those things done ahead of time. And then that frees your mind up and your time up to focus on the strategic things um, and the other uh, items and uh, pieces of evidence that you want to get into play and, you know, really work on your cross on your direct and work on your story to present your case in the best yeah. light and not having to worry about all that other stuff that it gives you time to perfect your story. Cause what we're really doing when we're talking to a jury is we got to tell them a story about something they know nothing about. And we know I, everything about, you know, we're living our cases and we're, you know, dealing with our clients and working with our clients and trying to help them, but they don't know us and they don't know our clients. They don't know anything about the story. We have to give it to them in a way that, especially now where everyone wants, you know, snackable bite-sized sort of content and they want everything in its simplest form. We have to take really, really complex issues and really break them down and distill them into ways that a jury is really going to understand. And this gives you a lot of time to do that. So um, I think that if we can stay focused and stay sort of optimistic and positive in a time where it's really hard to do that, we will come out of this with a great advantage um, for our clients in our cases. I think that's absolutely the right attitude. Um, and one of the, the things that, well, t- making a sharp turn here, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today is both John and I share a similar background in the fact that we both used to do defense work and then over time, we ended up jumping the fence and doing plaintiff's injury cases. Um, and I want to talk about that. We want to talk about why we both chose to to make that uh, jump and talk about you know the different things that we've learned from being on both sides of the fence as opposed to you know just being on one side or the other. So, John, how long did you work as an attorney at a defense firm before you ended up jumping over to the plaintiff's side? Yeah, so I was on the defense side for a little more than five years, primarily doing uh, mesothelioma, toxic tort, and asbestos defense. I also did a little bit of um, some general civil defense, med mal defense, insurance defense, kind of ran the gamut, but the majority of my practice was toxic tort, asbestos cases. Um, And I did that for, yeah, about five and a half years or so. and it was enough time to realize it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I thought that it was a really great experience and it, it offered me, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity to, I think, really accelerate my career and get a lot of experience that people that are my contemporaries didn't have. I mean, I've taken thousands of depositions because of uh, how many there are in an asbestos case. So um, things like that have been really helpful. Uh, outside of the depositions, what kind of other things did you pick up as far as how insurance companies and um, you know self-insureds, how they view and evaluate uh, cases involving injuries? So the biggest thing uh, was how formulaic it can be with certain types of injuries and the limitations on activities of daily living and things like that. Every time you uh, have a case, you take a deposition or you know, anything significant happens in the case, we would do a report and then we would do one, um, you know, every 90 days, usually sometimes, uh, carriers wanted us to do them every 60 days. And, uh, and we just, we would write a report of it. Here's what's going on in the case. Here's what, uh, we think of it. Here's what our valuation is or what we think it's worth. But the thing that stood out to me, and I think the thing that's helped me the most as a plaintiff's lawyer is understanding that there's a huge section in a lot of these reports 
that is basically, is the plane of somebody that a jury would like, trust, rely on, care about, want to help? Um, it's not exactly framed that way, but that's what they're asking. And if you can um, make sure that your clients come across as the real people that they are, genuine, trustworthy, believable people that they are, um, I think that carries a lot of weight when uh, a defense lawyer is talking to the insurance company and explaining what the exposure is or what the potential risk is um, to that insurance company. That is such an important point. When I'm prepping clients for depositions, I always tell them that, you know, we've, I've done focus groups before, you've done focus groups before. And the things that really matter to people are, do they trust you and do they yeah. like you? You know, if you can have both those things, that then you're, you're set. You know, the things that you say, you know, they're not going to be perfect. You're not an attorney. You're not an accident reconstructionist. You're not a doctor. You're not going to have all the details perfect. Your memory is going to be a little bit fuzzy. But if they trust you and if they trust you and they like you, then you're in great shape. Yeah. And if they don't trust you, if, they, if you're inconsistent, if you say things that can't necessarily be backed up, then, then there's a problem because then it doesn't matter what you say because the jury's skeptical of you anyway. But I think you've really hit the nail on the head. If you have, if your client presents themselves well, if they present themselves as, as an honest and trustworthy person, then that, that puts you miles ahead when it comes to um, all these injury cases, really. Yeah, you can't get credibility back, right? I mean, right. perfection is, is not the game. The, the game is, are you telling the truth? Are you believable? And do you have credibility? And I think, you know, that's why we work so hard to find where defense experts might be not, you know, representing the records or the truth correctly. I'm not going to call them liars, but where they're paid to sort of um, spin or stretch the truth sometimes is, um, you know, that credibility can be really undermined with any expert on either side um, if, it, if they're not really doing their job uh, correctly. Or fairly, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, my background similar in a way, but a little bit different. I spent about eight years on the defense side of things, uh, but the primary focus of my practice was defending nursing homes and assisted living facilities, and I did that for about eight years before jumping over to the plaintiff side. And in nursing home cases, they're kind of a unique. Uh, niche within both per personal injury and even within medical malpractice. A lot of the plaintiffs in the case, we were talking about credibility, aren't the injured person. It's usually uh, a representative of their estate if they've passed on, or a lot of times they're uh, incompetent to give testimony, so it's a family member. So a lot of times when on the defense, I would be deposing the plaintiff, it wouldn't be the actual injured party. So that that the credibility thing kind of goes out the window in a way because you're not talking to the person who actually was hurt. And in a lot of these nursing home cases, you know, it's basically presumed that the allegations in the case are true to a large extent because the, the there's no one out there to refute it except for other staff members. And obviously there's a bias there that they're going to try to put things in the light most favorable to them. And you have the plaintiff, who's usually an elderly person, sometimes has uh, capacity issues and isn't able to testify on their own behalf. And obviously, that's a more sympathetic person. So right. you're dealing, I mean, the nursing home defense thing, you're, you're starting basically fighting with one hand behind your back. It, it's, a, it's a very interesting practice. Um, I did, it, it was 
interesting and difficult. I did enjoy it in some ways. Uh, some of the people, you know, the nursing home industry, obviously there's a stigma associated with it and there are obvious reasons why there's a negative stigma associated with it. Um, and we can get into that in depth at another time, but uh, I did enjoy working with some of the people over there. I, I had a great boss over there who let me work up cases from at a pretty early on from, you know, just to, from the time they came in the office through trial. So I got a lot of great experience. Like you said, a lot of depositions, uh, working with experts, retaining experts, deposing and cross-examining yeah. experts and nursing home cases don't go to trial as much. So I, that was one thing that I would say, I wish I'd gotten more of on the defense side was more trial experience, but that's just kind of the nature of that industry. Uh, there's a lot of incentives for cases to settle. Um, so trials were kind of few and far between uh, as far as actually taking them into verdict, but a lot other, um, basically beyond trial, I got a lot of great experience, um, from all aspects of the case. Yeah. So what, uh, what was it that made you want to jump sides and come over to the plaintiff side? I mean, I really always wanted to go on the plaintiff side. When I was in law school, I clerked at a personal injury firm. My interest has always been kind of where law and medicine come together. I mean, even when I was in college before I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, um, I was interested in those things. I, I would, my college admissions paper was about a public policy issue about the, the legal aspects of some of a medical issue. Um, I actually entered college as a pre-med that didn't last long at all. Um, <laughs> found out pretty quickly. I wasn't cut out for that. Uh, so I went down the, you know, the political science law route. Um, and I always kind of knew I wanted to represent injured people. I mean, that's one of those things that it, it's, it's weird that this job is so strange. It's very, I, I think it's a unique profession, even within the law. And it requires a certain personality and a certain kind of devotion to what you're doing. Not that, not that other attorneys aren't devoted. You know, a lot of them are, are extremely devoted to what they do. And, yeah. But it, dealing with exclusively with people, people who've been hurt, you know, dealing with deaths, dealing with people who've been catastrophically injured. I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's taxing. And, but it's, it's something that if you feel... Um, it's also very rewarding at the same time. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those things. It takes a lot out of you. It's a very intense profession. But I, I think if you feel compelled to to get into it, then it's just something that you ultimately are going to get into, whether it's you know two years out of school, right out of school, or in my case, unfortunately, eight years out of school. Right. Yeah. Well, same here. I mean, I knew I wanted to try cases just because I knew that that was... Um, you know, what fired me up and got me out of bed, right? But what you're talking about is exactly right. The difference between, you know, the great personal injury lawyers that I've had the chance to observe or spend time around or talk with, um, that's the difference maker, right? Is they're true believers. They really, really believe in what they're doing and that it makes a difference in society, that it makes a difference for their clients. The flip side of that is also what you're talking about. There's a lot of absorbed trauma, right? There's a lot of weight that we carry on our shoulders when we're dealing with the families of people who've been wrongfully killed, essentially, you know, when we deal with a wrongful death case or people that have had their lives completely changed by a catastrophic injury, um, you know, especially uh, younger clients who have their whole lives ahead of them and their whole lives have been upended. I'm thinking of some of my clients who are in their 20s or 30s and have traumatic brain injuries. And, 
you know, they're going to live for another 30 or 40 years, but they're not going to be the same person. Right. And so there's a lot of, a lot of that you have to take on your shoulders. And I think that is a big motivator for me. Obviously it's a big motivator for you, but you're right. It, you run the risk of, of burnout you run the risk of sort of overloading yourself with some of that external absorbed trauma. When it comes to, you know, once you've made the decision to go from the defense side to the plaintiff side, what, what things did you do to kind of start and build your practice? Cause obviously the clients are totally different. It's a whole different business model. Uh, how did you kind of address and meet that challenge? Um, first of all, I let every single person I've ever met under the sun know that I help injured people. Um, and I worked really hard to uh, craft you know, a message, an elevator pitch, if you will, to tell people when I meet them or to send out uh, emails to everybody. I built an email list from all my LinkedIn contacts and I send them all an email that said, hey, uh, you know, we met through such and such, the Chicago Bar Association or Illinois Bar or whatever it is. And I wanted to let you know, I help injured people now. And if I can ever be of any assistance to you in any way, uh, let me know. And uh, truly, that is how I got some of my first cases. I mean, some of the first cases that uh, I was able to, to, to take and bring on were just because I was grinding and hustling and trying to meet as many people and um, build a, as many contacts as I could. Um, and I've found that the, the easiest way for me to help people is also by giving. If I'm able to you know, connect people with a lawyer that they need, they remember that. And so when they inevitably need a lawyer like me, um, thankfully, they've remembered that. And uh, that's, been, that's been how a lot of it has worked for me. Absolutely. Yep. You were talking about that elevator pitch. I know one of the things that you and I share is we're about the same age. Yeah. And you know, we're certain we have the same approximate experience level. And the weird thing about our business too, is that all attorneys who do what we do basically charge the same fees, you know? So you're charging the same fees as a guy who's been practicing for 35 years and has, you know, a hundred million dollars of verdict in, you know, back in their bank account. So what do you do to kind of differentiate yourself and explain why you would be the best lawyer for a given person? Even in like catastrophic, you know, big damages, injury cases. So I think that the advantage that I have, I think, is is the advantage that you have as well, is that I'm not a solo practitioner. I'm working with an established firm with established lawyers who have been practicing for 25, 35 years. And so uh, I've got a deep bench in that sense, right? The other thing that I can uh, promise clients is because I'm a younger guy and because I'm you know, I grew up with all this technology and I grew up so connected. Um, I'm always available. If you need me on a Sunday night, you have my cell phone number. If you're my client, um, I'm going to give you personal attention and I'm going to make sure that your case is worked correctly and that every stone, uh, is turned and every bit of investigating that needs to be done is done. Um, I can't promise that I'm the best lawyer in Chicago or Illinois or the world, but I can tell you that I'm going to work uh, harder than anybody else you're going to find, or at least that's the promise I'm going to make is I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to make sure that you get the best result you can. I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. Cause that's, that's kind of the same way I've been approaching this, especially with, you know, when you're presented with an injury that is, you know, a profound catastrophic injury and the client maybe is thinking in the back of their head, okay, why don't I go to one of the big name firms downtown? 
you know, you and I both practice in the Chicago suburbs. There's a huge majority of the injury firms are based in downtown Chicago. And right. they think, okay, maybe I should go to one of the guys on the billboards or that I see on TV. You know, why you? And I think you really hit the, you explained it perfectly. It's, it's about personalized attention. It's about attention to detail. It's about making them a priority. Yeah. You know, you can offer that in ways that other firms might be able to say that they can't, but they can, but they're really not going to, because if you have a hundred, you know, big dollar injury cases and, you know, this person walking the door is case 101, you know, that's really not going to be a priority. But if you have a smaller docket, you can give that person more personalized attention. You can tell them about how you're going to stay in communication with them, give them updates on the case. And then like the most important thing you said is follow through. Yeah. You know, you have... We have all this technology, you know, we're now, you know, with everything going on in the world right now, more um, open to it and it's becoming more prevalent, which is great because some of the, a lot of the people that are clients, you know, we have some clients that are unsophisticated with technology. Everyone's basically has to become more sophisticated with technology now to stay in contact with everybody. So, you know, I have older clients that don't like to use email. They're getting emails now. I have clients who, you know, they don't have Zoom. Now we have zoom like you and i are doing right now to stay in communication because there's nothing like you know face to face even if it's on a video it's so much different than a phone call i agree you know no substitution for an in-person meeting but you know this is basically the best we can do under the circumstances and people understand that and they're starting to get you know evolving with the technology and you know making it a part of our practice and a part of you know our clients lives and it really it really does it really has a great effect um in helping, in helping us communicate with our clients and making sure that we know that they know that, um, they're on our minds and that we're doing the best for them. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I I've ever received is get to know who your clients are as people go have dinner with them, invite them into your home if you, if you can. Um, but meet with them outside of the context of I'm your lawyer, meet with them as you would meet with a friend and get to know who they actually are. It's funny. You talk about, you know, file 101 or 102 on the defense side, every file had a number, you know, this is file 5,047, whatever it is. Right. Um, I don't have file numbers on the plaintiff side. I have clients with names and they're actual people like same here. I don't have file numbers. And, you know, sometimes I'll get requests from the defense. Like, well, can you tell me what your file number is? No, I can tell you my client's name is Jane Smith and Jane Smith has my cell phone number and Jane Smith and I had, you know, I know the names of her kids and I know her, who her husband is and who her parents are. And I know what she enjoys for a living. And this is an actual person. It's not a file number. Uh, and I think that is a real, real big differentiator for any uh, trial attorney, any uh, plaintiff's lawyer is just get to know your clients, know who they are as people. Don't treat them as a file number. Don't treat them as, um, you know, collateral, right? They're actual people who have suffered, ser- you know, serious uh, injury, serious consequences because of somebody else's negligence. Right. I think another thing that can kind of help, you know, people like you and I and other uh, attorneys who are about our experience level, uh, differentiating themselves is kind of subspecializing within the field of injury law. I know all of us have different experiences. My experience has mostly been in the nursing home realm. I I have a ton of experience uh, with, with that industry. And I know, you know, the regulations, I know the statutes, I know the standards. And then some people like yourself, you have uh, experience in other areas of law, probably more so than I do, or a lot of other attorneys. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah. So some of my specialties, um, you know, my firm has a toxic tort specialty, but, but what I've started to specialize in personally is brain injury work. It's really fascinating to me how the brain works. It's emerging science, it's emerging medicine, and there are not a lot of attorneys, uh, in our area or even in the country that are doing, um, you know, catastrophic traumatic brain injury work at a really, really high level. And I think that it's going to be, um, as the science develops and as the medicine develops and we, we understand the brain more, I think it's going to be a huge area uh, of opportunity uh, for people our age. Um, and so that's something that I've worked really hard to try to understand and try to um, sort of niche down into um, in the same way that you do with, with medical malpractice, complex medical malpractice or complex nursing home uh, cases, which are, are very similar to med, you know, med mal cases. Um, I think it's it's really important. You're right. It's really important to find a subspecialty, but do it in a way that you're passionate about, right? Don't just do it because you think it might make you money or it might make you stand out. If you don't like it, it's not going to make you money. It's not going to make you stand out because you're not going to be passionate. And you're not going to care. Um, you're absolutely right. It needs to come from a place of genuine intellectual curiosity yeah. and a, a passion for helping people. I mean, that's what the, the nursing home stuff. I, I kind of was brought into that, you know, I needed a job. I got a job at a defense firm, but then ultimately over time you, you get to know this industry, you get to know the people involved and you see things and you become, you know, I, I became, you know, very passionate about protecting the rights of the elderly, about making sure that nursing homes operate in a fashion that respects the rights of residents, about making sure that standards of care are adhered to. And, you know, I, the, the medicine has always been interesting to me, like I was talking about before. I've always been kind of interested at, you know, at the interplay between medicine and the way doctors and hospitals operate and how that intersects with the law. And that really became kind of my uh, my entry point into medical malpractice and nursing homework. And it's something I genuinely am curious about. I I read about these things all the time. I try to stay updated on on the cases, on the medicine too. Um, and, and I'm sure you've done the same thing with traumatic brain injuries, which, as you said, is an evolving science. So tell us a little bit about how you keep up to date with those things. So the biggest game changer for me was finding um, finding groups of people that basically mastermind groups that I could connect with and learn from. So one of them has been a listserv that's run by Nick Rowley, who's a lawyer in California who does a lot of traumatic brain injury work. It's called Trial by Human. Um, that's been a really big boon to my practice and, and my ability to learn. The other one was I went to a conference um, what, two years ago now in San Diego called the TBI Med Legal Conference, where they brought together 100 different doctors and 100 different lawyers. It was a three-day conference, and all they talked about was how to help people with traumatic brain injuries, how to work these cases, who the experts are that you need, who uh, is you know, working on emerging science, what it is, um, what the best technologies are for brain imaging or, or everything under the sun and getting connected to that community. Um, it is primarily, you know, lawyers on the West Coast, but there were lawyers from all over the country that I met and getting connected to that community and getting plugged in um, has been an incredible resource because anytime I need an expert, anytime I need a, a new, you know, article or anything, it's being shared all the time. And that's been a really, really great community for me to be plugged into uh, just so I can continue to learn and continue to grow and continue to help people. How about you? 
Yeah, that's one thing I found fascinating about the differences between the plaintiff side and the defense side is the level of information sharing on the plaintiff side yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah. Between listservs and you know bar associations and groups and like even subgroups like you were just talking about, uh, the amount and level of information sharing is just unbelievable. I, I don't think there's anything comparable on the defense side that I'm aware of. As far as people sharing everything from you know opinions on experts to discovery to depositions to uh, experts, it's just it's an unbelievable resource that we have in our colleagues and friends, and it's yeah. it's truly amazing. And uh, the the kind of a rising tide lifts all boats ethos yeah. among the plaintiffs bar is something I find. I well, I certainly didn't see on the defense side, and I find it incredible. Uh, that that seems to be in the minds of most of the people that you come across in this business. It's truly amazing. And I, it's, I think it's unique to the plaintiff's bar. Yeah, I agree. It's something that I did not expect when I came from the defense side to the plaintiff side. Everybody um, that I interacted with on the defense side, my colleagues when I was a defense lawyer, um, had sort of an image of plaintiff's lawyers as this cutthroat group, hyper-competitive, um, you know, competing for the best cases and competing for the, the, the biggest verdicts and everything else. And while there is some of that, I mean, everybody wants to be able to, to help people and handle complex cases and do incredible work. What I found is that um, every single plaintiff's lawyer that I've reached out to for advice goes out of their way to help me. It's an incredible community. And you're right. It is that rising tide lifts all boats mentality. I see it on listservs all the time where, you know, such and such got, this incredible verdict and there is no, uh, you know, derision or, you know, anything negative. It's all, that's incredible. Congratulations. Tell us how you did it. Teach us what you did. Give me a recap of what worked for you. Who were your experts? Who were, um, you know, your star witnesses? Um, there's a lot of collaboration on this side, even though it is a competitive industry. And even though it is, uh, you know, a competitive group of people, I think most plaintiff's lawyers are very competitive in that, we hate to lose more than we like to win, but we're not doing it at each other's expense. We're, we're really, you know, rowing the boat in the same direction. And I think that's really, really cool to see. And it's an incredible community. Yeah. And the most amazing thing about that is when you ask, well, how did you do that? What worked for you? They will actually tell you. Yeah. It's yeah. unbelievable. It yeah, doesn't always happen that way. And I'm, I, I've, that is one thing that I've been consistently shocked by since I've made the transition is how open and willing to share everyone on this side that all seems to be with each other. It's a, it's a really amazing community and I'm really happy to be a part of it. Before we go, uh, we're going to do uh, something we plan to do every podcast episode uh, Matt, just give me sort of your 30-second trial tip. Well, this first one's not exactly a trial tip. It's a, a mediation case resolution tip. Uh, I know mediating cases has become extraordinarily prevalent. Uh, I, always, I always think of it as a good option to try to attempt resolution. And not everyone does this, but some mediators like to have the plaintiffs and the defendants give opening statements in a mediation to kind of lay out their case. And I am totally against this practice. Um, to me, the whole idea of a mediation is 
to bring two parties together to rise above their differences and to try to achieve a resolution. And by giving an opening statement that generally is going to point out where the parties differ on the facts and the damages and the injuries, it to me only serves to drive the parties apart. And it kind of undermines the whole process of mediation for me. So I've, I've always tried to avoid having an opening statement. Um, the one time where I was forced to, the mediation fell apart. I don't think that's a coincidence. So my advice to all, any attorneys out there is when you're mediating a case and the prospect of an opening statement is brought up, just say no. It doesn't serve any purpose. It's going to undermine the purpose of the mediation. And in my opinion, it's not going to lead to any resolution, let alone a better resolution for your client. Yeah, I think that's a great tip. I, I really agree. Um, I just don't, I don't like uh, the opening statement either. It just, it feels forced. It doesn't seem to help your client at all. So that's a fantastic tip. My quick tip is, uh, I think, goes well with life in the time of coronavirus. I have become uh, an iPad sort of disciple recently. Uh, I just got my first iPad. I love it. And what I really love and what I've been using is Transcript Pad. It's an app. It's a little bit expensive, but I can load all my trial transcripts onto it, all of my depositions onto it, uh, carry them everywhere I go, and I can mark them up. I can cut them up. I can find key pieces of testimony and flag them so that I can really quickly use them if I'm you know, writing demand letters, writing mediation statements, drafting motions in limine, and I want to exclude certain testimony, or preparing for trial, getting ready for a cross-examination or a direct. Um, I have it all at my fingertips, all in one place. I'm a huge, huge fan of this app. I think it's so um, useful and it's incredibly easy and user-friendly. Um, like I said, it's a little expensive, but uh, I think it pays for itself. So that's that's my quick tip of you know survival in the life of uh, an attorney during coronavirus, right, is uh, use technology where you can to make your practice easier. Absolutely. Transcript pad and trial pad too for trials. It's yeah. so easy. It's so intuitive. It's It's great software and... Luckily for me, it doesn't take a genius to operate because I'm certainly not uh, <laughs> one, especially when it comes to technology. And it's it's super easy, very effective, and uh, we use it for all our trials. Yeah, same. It's awesome, and I highly recommend it. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. I think this has been a fantastic uh, first episode as we're you know suffering through uh, life and coronavirus. So um, thank you guys for listening. I'm John Risbold. I'm Matt Heimlich. And until next time, we're on trial.